Thanks for joining us online today. If you'd like to join the conversation, connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope that you'll enjoy this message. Well, come on, Next Level. This is Compassion Weekend, and we are in for a treat. This weekend, Next Level Church, we have an honored guest with us. Dr. Wes Stafford is the former president and CEO of Compassion International. And Compassion is a ministry that works across the globe in 26 nations to partner sponsors, like my wife and I and our family, and so many of you who have sponsored children with Compassion, you understand, sponsors families with children in poverty to lift them out of poverty. It's one of the most incredible ministries I've ever been a part of. And Dr. Stafford is an advocate for children. You guys get ready. He has an incredible story, an incredible testimony, and an incredible heart and passion for the least of these, the children of our world. So come on, Next Level Church. At every campus, welcome Dr. Wes Stafford. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Don't you love that guy? You know how lucky you are to have that man as your pastor and Sarah? Oh, my goodness. If I lived within driving distance, I'd be here. I'm glad to be here, actually. Uh, One of the biggest reasons, I'm awfully glad to escape uh, Colorado winter. I scraped uh, a foot of snow off my Jeep in order to get to the airport yesterday. And then I come here, and I see you guys living in paradise. Perfect everything. And I, I was thinking, you, I'm happy for you, but uh, you've made a tactical error here. Uh, you've chosen to live basically in paradise now while you're alive, and I don't know what you think heaven is going to be like, how you're going to improve on this. I don't think the sky is going to be any bluer or the temperature is going to be any more perfect. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm happy for you, and I'm happy, happy to be here, actually. Uh, I've been impressed with this church. I've seen uh, the work that you're doing among children. As a child advocate, it just warms my heart to see how you honor your children and how you honor uh, those who work with children. I read the history of this, uh, of this church, and uh, I discovered that in the first 12 people who were a part of this church, these guys made the case two of them were children. You know how rare that is? We say, well, there were a dozen. No, you counted the children, and I want to thank you for that because that's exactly what my life's battle is about. Children really, really matter. And I want to speak up on behalf of children. Scripture says, so speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And that clearly has to include little children. Usually I have to fight uh, mission executives and seminary professors and theologians that children actually matter. You think it would be quite evident, but usually Uh, They're like, no, it's a second-rate mandate. We don't put that much emphasis on it, but you do. And so I want to encourage you that what you're up to is incredibly, incredibly important. The message today uh, comes out of uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, where Jesus said, uh, the least of these, and I would say the least of these matter most. And throughout history, the church has behaved as if Jesus skipped a word when he said, whatever you've done for one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. With our strategies and our priorities and our budgets, we've acted like he meant to say the least important of these. But he didn't. He meant, he meant the weak, the vulnerable. He meant the small. He meant those who cannot thank you, those who cannot honor you, those who can't reward you. When you've done something for one of them, mysteriously and wonderfully, you've done it for me, those who can't care for themselves, those who can't speak for themselves. 
And that little boy, that means that you wouldn't give up on. Uh, Jesus will say in, uh, in Matthew 25, that was me. That little girl you protected, that was me. Those tears you wiped, they were mine. I felt that hug. And that day is coming. It's, uh, it's straight out of the scripture, Matthew 25, 40. The day is coming, one trumpet blast from now, uh, when the sky splits open, when, we, when the dark glass is removed and the veil's gone, then we will all understand the priorities of the kingdom of God. We will know what was important and what wasn't important. We'll know who was important and who wasn't important. And we'll learn that the little were, in fact, very important. And those who blessed them, in fact, blessed the heart of God mysteriously and wonderfully. And you are doing it. So many of you are sponsors already. You watch that and you're like, yeah, I remember those, those letters. And I want to say on behalf of those little ones, thank you. I love the story of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, who was a great child advocate. Apparently, he lived in the 1800s, and apparently one evening as he was going to bed after an evangelistic service, his wife Emma asked him, well, how did it go tonight, Dwight? And he said, well, pretty good. Two and a half converts. Well, she thought for a second. She said, that's a, that's a cute way to say it. How old was the child? And he said, no, no, Emma, it was two children and one adult. The children have their whole lives in front of them. It's the adult who's half gone. When I heard, first heard that story, I thought two grown-ups and a little child. Well, I don't anymore. It's why I wrote Too Small to Ignore. It's why I wrote Just a Minute. It's why I so appreciate people who understand and care about little children. Deal Moody led a million people to Christ. Over half of them were little children. And on his deathbed... He said, if I had my life to live over again, I would dedicate my entire life in ministry to children. You see, he understood the harvest. He understood that our world is half children right now. He also understood that more uh, that close to 85% of those of us who give our lives to Christ do it while we are children. So it's not only half the harvest, it's the perfect part of the harvest. So let me ask you, how many of you gave your life to Christ between the ages of 4 and 14 while you were children? Raise your hands. Yeah, it holds up here. My goodness, yes. As obvious as that is, do you know that it's rare that a mission organization spend more than 10% of its budget on reaching children? And it is rare that a church spends more than 15% of its budget on reaching children. That's why I am so excited to be here and to see what you guys uh, are about and what you care uh, so much about. So I've asked myself, if it was so obvious to him, how could, how could we have missed it all this time? So I thought, well, uh, maybe it's because there's just not enough of them. And I'm thinking, no, they're, they're half of our world. It's half children. I thought, well, maybe they're unimportant or maybe they're only half as important because they're only like half our size. My wife Donna is half my size. And when I pointed that out, uh, she made it very clear that size has nothing to do with importance. <laughs> so we can, put that, we can put that one to rest. Wondered if maybe it's all just too complicated. We're unfamiliar with the plight of children. Maybe more of us need to get PhDs in this field. And then I stop and I think, and uh, uh, no, I ne never met anybody who wasn't an expert in child development. They either are a child and know all about it, or they were a child. You guys all spent at least 18 years doing nothing but being a child. That's 9,500,000 minutes 
being nothing but a child. We don't need to know anything more about it. I thought, well, maybe the scriptures should be a little more clear. Maybe if God had just made it real clear what he expects of us with these little ones. But no, that's, the mandate is very clear. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. Let the children come to me. Uh, don't you dare cause one of those little ones to stumble. You can go all through scripture and you realize he really, really cares about children. And he expects us to, too. One of my great joys is to go through the scriptures and spot the children. You want to know God's heart? Well, read his book and what was on his heart. And I've discovered that almost any time a child is mentioned in scriptures, God is up to something important. It turns out God loves children, yeah. Uh, He believes in children, and he uses children powerfully. There are times when God must have said, wow, this is really huge. This is really important. I don't dare entrust it to a grown-up. I need a child. Like to kill a giant that for 40 days had been mocking God and the Israelites. What wasn't needed was the power of a warrior. What was needed was the faith of a little boy. And when Eli would no longer listen to God nor his evil sons, God chose a little boy with a very difficult message, a little guy named Samuel. And most of us who don't really understand the importance of children would say, uh, Samuel, just go tell Eli I love him and please be good. No, God entrusted a powerful message to a little boy and said, you go tell Eli and his sons, basically, they're fired. Because God needed a pure, clear message. An eight-year-old boy was one of the most outstanding kings in all of Israel. Jesus taught in the temple when he was only 12 years old. When Jesus needed to feed 5,000 people and he could have snapped his finger to do it, he waited until one little guy came forward with his five loaves and two fish very ungrown-up-like. Us grown-ups would have said, excuse me, I'm the only one smart enough apparently to have brought my lunch. I'm sorry about you guys. Or maybe a little more generous, you can have two loaves and one fish. That seems fair to me. And I think that Jesus waited for a little boy, as only a child would do, to come forward and say basically, Jesus, what if I gave you everything I have? Would that be enough? And I believe Jesus did that miracle for that. We don't even know his name for that little boy. All through scriptures, it's very, very clear that God loves, believes, and uses children. I could spend the rest of the evening telling you stories of what God is doing in the current world about children. The problem with us grown-ups is we think too much or we know too much. Or, or the real problem is we think we know too much. I believe that's what's holding us back. Children pay the greatest price for everything that goes wrong in society. They don't vote, so they don't get the politician's attention. They don't tithe, or if they do, it's just a few sticky pennies, and it doesn't get the attention of the missions committee. And yet everything that goes wrong in our world, they pay the price for it. It all spirals down onto their little heads. Hunger, disease, disaster, children all pay the greatest price. Our sins of commission, doing the things that we know we shouldn't do, children pay the greatest price. Do you know that more children have been killed in the last 10 years wars than soldiers? Pornography at its sickest is child pornography. We all understand that. Prostitution at its worst is child prostitution. Do you know that there are 27 million slaves in our world today? Most of them in the sex trafficking industry. They are young, innocent women and little children. 
It used to be as awful as slavery was that they were bought and sold on the basis of how strong are they, how much wood can they carry, how much cotton can they pick. That was great, great evil, but today it's far worse. I just came from Thailand last week. It is far worse. Right now the question is, how young is she? How small is she? How easily can she be taken advantage of? And children pay the price for our sins of commission, doing the things that we know we shouldn't do. They also pay the price for our sins of omission, not doing the things that we know we should do. And uh, Edmund Burke said, all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. So they pay the price all through Scripture, all the way through history, and all through our world. How can this be? How can we miss all of this? I've come to this conclusion after 38 years of working among children and 18 years of having been a child. I come to this conclusion. Although they are generally unimportant in our missions, in our governments, and many times in our churches, they are hugely, each and every one, hugely important to the two most powerful forces in all the universe, the hosts of hell and the hosts of heaven. Satan has only one thing on his mind, and that is breaking the heart of God. And he's not stupid. He knows, why don't I attack what God loves most? Mankind. He watched creation. He waited till day six, and he saw, hmm, he didn't just speak it this time. He fashioned it. If I want to break God's heart, that's what I attack. And then he must have said, when do I attack? And he came to the conclusion, the sooner, the better. And so all of heaven delights in the destruction and the abuse of children, all, uh, all of hell. But all of heaven rejoices when one child enters in. And so we are engaged invisibly in this overwhelming battle. And they really, really matter. This is why some of us fight so hard for children. I've never met anybody who is a champion for children who doesn't have a pretty powerful reason for why they care so much. And this evening, I want to tell you my reason why I care so much. Uh, I'm pretty sure it started when I was, in fact, in the womb. I'm pretty sure the angels gathered around at my birth, and they said, my, he's as cute as could be, but he's not real smart. We can see that. We're going to have to make it real clear what he's to do with his life. And so I don't know how assignments are made, but I was assigned to a missionary family who were sent to the Ivory Coast of West Africa on the edge of the Sahara Desert, the hottest, dustiest, most remote place probably on the planet. Nobody wanted to be assigned where we were assigned, and uh, nobody came and visited us. We were way out there on our own. I was a typical missionary kid. I ran around barefoot most of the time, had a slingshot around my neck at all times. Uh, It's the one thing I'm really, really good at. Slingshot, you should be good at something. That's what I got. Um, I was skinny. Uh, I was sickly. Uh, I nearly died six times. Our nearest hospital was a full day's uh, drive away. Uh, Like many missionary kids, I spoke four languages every day, uh, but none of them very well. And English was far and away my, uh, my weakest language. Like I said, it was 120 degrees on a typical day with no electricity, no fan, no television, no refrigerator. Uh, it was a harsh place to be. My, wife, my mother was a city girl from Denver, uh, called to Africa. Well, this place was hard as it was. It was a paradise for a little boy, but it was, it was a real difficult spot for a uh, city girl. And I remember my mom used to look out across the Sahara Desert, 120 degrees, just wafting in her face. And she would say, but at least I have one luxury. I have running water. 
Wes, run and get some water. And I would run out to the well back and forth. So God allowed me to be raised in this poverty-stricken little village, the son of missionary parents. They had a saying in the village, it takes the whole village to raise a child. It wasn't a plaque on the wall. It's how everybody lived in that village. Every child belonged to every grown-up. And I was the only, my sister and I were the only white children for over 100 miles in any direction. And so we just got raised in the, in the bosom of this little village. And uh, they, uh, I never fell down as a little boy without some African woman swooping in, picking me up, drying my tears, sending me on my way. Uh, I didn't get away with a lot of mischief in that village because all of these grown-ups thought I was their kid and I'm standing out just a little bit. I needed some camouflage. I remember the chief, one time the chief said, you know, um, the goats are a little skinny this year and it's not because we're in a drought. It's because the little boys are chasing them all around the village. And I remember him saying, I don't know who all the culprits are in all the swirling red dust, but I do know this, the little white boy is one of them. <laughs> and as a little boy, I prayed every night. And I said, Lord, I know you can do it. You parted the Red Sea. You brought down the walls of Jericho. In the morning, when I wake up, please let my skin be black like all of my friends. And that would be the first thing I would check every morning. And I'm like, God, still white. But, but maybe today, maybe tomorrow. They took me in as, uh, as their son in that village. They taught me what they taught their kids. Uh, I learned how to hunt I learned how to fish. I learned how to work in the fields. By the time I was 15 years old and came to America finally to live, I was a fully trained peasant farmer. I knew everything I needed to do to eke out a living on the edge of the Sahara Desert. But more important than those skills, they taught me uh, the heart of the poor. I tell, I tell people everything I ever needed to know to lead the worldwide ministry of compassion for all those years. I learned from the poor around the campfires and in the fields of that little village. When I think of the poor, I don't even subtly think downward. I think upward. And I think we have to earn the right to even be around them. But they taught me the things that really mattered to me. They shaped my heart, my character. They taught me about love. Turns out love is the most powerful force on earth. No matter how poor you are, you can still give love and you can still receive love. As a matter of fact, the more of it you give, the more of it you get. And so it was a very loving thing. I tried to run a loving organization in compassion all the years that I was there. I learned that joy is not dictated by circumstances. You choose to be joyful or not. Neither is hope, by the way. We tend to be hopeful when we have more assets than liabilities. It's always the other way around for the poor. And yet they hope in the Lord, they hope in one another, and I learned hope from them. A leader without hope has no business leading. I learned that time should be your servant, not your master. We only went by the sun. I was 15 before I ever understood that you could wear one of these things on your wrist. I learned how to give and how to receive. The worst thing you could be in my village was selfish. To withhold from your brother in his time of need was unacceptable behavior. We shared everything we had. I learned if God made you strong, it's not for you. It's for you to be there for those who are weak. And if God made you brave, it's not for you. It's for you to be there for those who are frightened. And it's in this setting that my heart was shaped. And it's in this setting that I learned about poverty and why I gave the rest of my life to fighting four children 
in poverty. We were vulnerable to poverty in spite of the, of the family's strength and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the character that we had. We were, in fact, vulnerable. We were barely surviving on the edge of a very, very harsh environment. No money for irrigation, no money for seeds, no money for pesticides. I remember when I was about six years old, a plague of locusts like Egypt came in from the Sahara Desert into our place. They were on the ground for two hours. We ran out there. We beat on them with sticks and tried to get them fly away. It was the moment of harvest. We were going to harvest that weekend. And when they flew away after two hours, they took everything green with them. There was no no uh, crops. There was no grass. The, the wild animals migrated away. The swamp dried up. And we almost died. Except for a year, we ate bugs. The whole village, we ate we ate termites. And I know what it feels like to go to bed hungry with no hope for things changing. The next year I was seven years old and it's probably the year that really launched my, my time at Compassion and my presidency. The next year measles swept through our village. Measles, that should keep you out of school for a couple of days. But because we were already weak from the, from the, the locusts and no food, it was a killer. And at age seven, I watched one out of every four of my childhood buddies die of measles all around me, some of them right in my arms. I remember running to my father and saying, uh, Papa, when do you think it'll be my turn? And I remember him saying, your turn for what, Wes? And I said, my turn to die, Daddy. All my friends are dying. And I'll never forget this. My father said, son, you don't have to worry about this. You're not going to die from this. And I said, how do you know, Papa? And he said, roll up your sleeve. And I rolled up my little T-shirt. And he said, those little scratches on your arm, those are called vaccinations. You got that in America before you came here, so you wouldn't get these diseases. And I will never, never forget that moment. Because suddenly standing there, this skinny little seven-year-old, suddenly I realized the world is not fair. And I stammered to my papa. I remember his face went blurry through my tears. I could no longer see his face. And I stammered, Papa, it's not fair. Why don't all of my friends have scratches on their arms? Fast forward a few decades and imagine my joy leading Compassion International when we put scratches on hundreds of thousands of little children's arms every day, every year to save their lives. <clears throat> amazing, amazing what God can redeem. So we were poor. By the time I was 15 years old and came to America, half of my childhood buddies had died. Some of them of measles, but also malaria and smallpox. We had snakes that could kill you in 30 minutes in our hospital. <coughs> our hospital was uh, a full day away. We buried them the same day they died. We had no choice. We had no refrigeration. We had no electricity. And so the, the brokenhearted village would gather around almost every evening with a funeral service for one of my little friends. And I remember we would cry together, we would weep, we would, we would uh, tell stories of these little ones, what they wanted to become, uh, the good things that they had done. I remember thinking, you know what, I don't know what you're thinking, God, but you keep taking the good ones and you keep believing rascals like me. So we would bury them and tell the stories of these little children. I was one of the younger ones, so I would have to go to my cot early. But I would lie in my cot, and I would still listen to the funeral service, which would go on all night long, the drums playing. 
remarkable drummer here, but we used drums as a language. That's how we communicated from village to village. So I would lie in my bed and I would listen to the stories of the drums of my little buddies and I couldn't escape their lives and their deaths. And I would lie on my back in my little cot, the hot tropical night. And I remember my eyes would fill with tears that would spill down and my ears would fill with tears and eventually it would spill onto my pillow and I would drift to sleep. But a few days later, it would be another one of my little buddies. And I grew up with a broken heart and I grew up hating poverty and I grew up hating what it does to little children. And I couldn't do anything about it. I was one who had no voice, who could not speak for himself. Finally, I'm 15 years old and we come to America for the first time. First place I see in America is New York City. I remember that day because as I was walking through New York City, I saw these people walking around with these big brown paper bags in their arms. And I, and I, uh, I peeked inside and I realized, it's food. These guys are all carrying food. And being a pretty darn good hunter, I backtracked them. Where's that coming from? <laughs> and I came to my first grocery store at age 15. And I remember walking inside and thinking, oh my, what is all this? Food. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. There's plenty of food. They didn't need to starve. And right next door was a pharmacy. And I looked in there and I asked in my broken English, it was my weakest language by far, and I said, what all this? And he says, oh, it's, uh, it's medicine. And I said, hesitantly, you have vaccination? And he says, oh, yeah, we don't sell it to kids like you, but there's a whole freezer load. We, we sell it to doctors. And suddenly it hit me. They didn't need to die from that either. And I had a broken heart. I'll never forget. I, I went out to the front and I sat on the curb in New York City, traffic back and forth in front of me, skinny little 15-year-old kid. And I just wept and wept and wept. I realized a whole childhood of sorrow and loss and it didn't need to happen. It was New York City, so nobody so much as stopped and said, are you okay? Can I help you? And uh, I ran out of tears eventually after an hour or two. And I just began watching them go by. And I was like, what is wrong with you people? I saw these fancy shoes and these purses and all. And I thought, how can you be like this? You have all of this and you don't care. And I went into a rage that really lasted through my high school years in America. I was like, what is wrong with you people? If you had, and I didn't think you cared, you were by definition my enemy. Until I had lived in America for a while, got the language a little better, got to know the heart, and suddenly I realized, no, these are great great people. The issue isn't that they don't care. The issue is they don't know. And when they know, there's never been a more generous people in the history of the world. They just need to know. And so as a young man, I thought, how do, how do I do this? Somehow I have to serve as a bridge between these two worlds. I know the village and I know their values. I know what poverty does. I know their skills. I know their heart. I know their need. But now I know these people too. And I know their language and their culture. And, and, I, and I know what I happen to know is they actually need each other. These guys need over here what these guys have over here. And the truth is, although these guys may have money in their pockets, they need the kind of love and joy and hope that the poor understand. And so I figured I've got to bridge these worlds. And I thought, I don't know, what is that, the United Nations or an ambassador or something? And about that time, I stumble onto this little place called Compassion International. It was about the size of a 7-Eleven store, the whole organization back in those days. And, um, and uh, 
just a tiny little place, but I discovered all they do is bridge these two worlds. And so I thought, you know what? I don't have to start anything. Why don't I just throw myself into this and help them do what they do? So for 38 years, I've been a part of that ministry because of where I came from, because of what I know, and because of what I think needs to happen as followers of Christ. For 20 of those years, I had the great joy of being its president. I watched it grow from 30,000 sponsored children to a 1,750,000 sponsored children. What an amazing joy can you imagine in my heart. I went into the scriptures and discovered that the idea of being a sponsor, because all of those children are linked to somebody, reaching out to them like a hero. And uh, the very first sponsor really was Jesus' idea, I discover in Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan did what many of you do with compassion. The Good Samaritan said uh, to the innkeeper, you know, you got the facilities, you got the time, you got the expertise, I'll make you a deal. You take care of this man for me and I'll pay. Isn't that exactly what you say for the little guy in Ethiopia to compassion, the little one in El Salvador? Jesus' idea, and he ended that story with go do the same thing. And so that's what we've done for 62 years at Compassion. Today, we partner with 7,000 churches across the world. Uh, we add a church every single day. That means a new poverty-stricken location with a church and two or 300 children in that church. We don't even touch the life of a child except through the local church. We think the church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. And so we maintain a low profile. If you ever traveled out there, you never see compassion with on, its, on our vehicles or on our T-shirts. If anybody's going to get thanked, we want it to be that local pastor. We want it to be that local body of peasant believers. And we want the community to eventually say, why do you do this? Why do you care? And we want the church to be able to say, it's all about the love of Jesus Christ. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel everywhere you go. And if necessary, use words. And that's what we're doing in 7,000 places across the world. It's been said all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. And I've learned that good people do nothing for two reasons. They don't know what to do, and they don't know who to trust. And what compassion has put together is something that any of us can do. I had supper last night with Drew and Will, two little guys who are sponsoring, uh, who could explain exactly how they chose the child that they sponsored. It can be done. And the second thing is they don't know who to trust. And so Compassion has considered this very, very carefully. For the last 14 years, Compassion has gotten the highest possible rating from the uh, uh, charity, uh, charity Navigator, which puts Compassion in the top 1% of all the nonprofit organizations in the country. If that's not a good enough audit trail, my great joy is 9,000 sponsors went last year and met their child face-to-face. -face. You want to know if that's really happening? I don't know. Go Go see it for yourself. Imagine the son of a missionary. One of my greatest, greatest joys is to know absolutely with certainty that 434 children will give their life to Christ today at the knee of their pastor or in a Sunday school classroom underneath a mango tree somewhere. It happened yesterday. It will happen again tomorrow. It happens every day of the year. 158,000 little children gave their lives to Christ. Now, last year, now the joy is discipling them to reach their full God-given potential. Now, you want to put, the, put, put a visual image on that? That means that between this service and when you gather together again next Saturday evening, the number of children who will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior in compassion 
would fill this entire auditorium five times over. Yeah, praise the Lord. And so now the job is to disciple them so they bless their own communities and change their own world. So now you know my battle. Now you know my cause. Now you know my mission. Now you know why I care so much. And by the way, everybody needs a cause. You've got to have something not about you, something outside of you, something that needs your time, your talent, your treasure, your heart, something that can move you to tears in 30 seconds, either tears of great sorrow at the need that needs to be addressed or tears of great joy. And if you don't have such a cause, I beg you, don't live like that. We don't have time for you to live like that. And if you don't have a cause, I don't know, take mine. You can have my cause. Help me in the battle for children. You see, we live only a short time on this planet. Do you realize this is not home? This is a campsite. Don't get too comfortable down here. We're not going to be here that long. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we hear a different drummer. We march to a different beat. Everything about the kingdom that we belong to is the complete upside-down opposite of this world in which we find ourselves. The first are last, and the last are first. The weak are strong, the strong are weak, the poor are rich. Surrender is what leads to victory. Beauty is on the inside. And in the kingdom of our God, the little happen to be, I don't know, big. So how do we live until that day comes? Romans 12 tells us pretty clearly, be not conformed to this world. It's not home. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed from the inside out. And so those of us who are waiting for the return of our Lord, we need to be different than the world around us. And we need to be better than the world around us. We need to see differently. We need to feel differently. We need to think differently. And ultimately, we need to act differently. And why would we do this? The scriptures tell us, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and give you applause. No, they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. May God bless you, Next Level. I love you guys. I love your heart. I love what you're doing in this place. And may God bless you as you bless the children here in your Jerusalem and the children across the world as you allow compassion to minister to them on your behalf. Will you pray with me? Lord, I know that what we've been talking about is very close to your heart. I have seen your love for children. I have seen your broken heart when children are lost and when children are abused and children suffer. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will stir in our hearts what you want to do, our own children that we're going to put to bed tonight, the little children downtown Fort Myers and the children across the world. Help us to be the kind of people you would have us to be, to speak up for the little ones who can't speak for themselves. Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, my friend. Wow. That was incredible, wasn't it, Next Level? Listen, here's, here's what I want to I wanna share with you for just a moment. You've heard us talk about kingdom builders. 
at Next Level Church, listen, when you opt into Kingdom Builders, when we give to Kingdom Builders here at Next Level Church, we're partnering, we're sponsoring, we're partnering with Compassion International, and that's called a child survival program. And what that means is this year in a village called Chalamarca, Peru, our Kingdom Builders Fund is going to be funding, helping mothers un, uh, with unborn children or, or newborn babies, giving them the health that they need, the vaccinations they need, the medicines they need, the nutrition they need, and the, the information and knowledge they need to raise those children up. But here's the great thing about Compassion International. It doesn't just begin and end there. They have the child survival program that kind of is birth or pre-birth all the way through about three or four years old. But once a child hits about four years of age, then Compassion International has their one-to-one child sponsorship program. And I love that because it takes us, individual families and individuals, and it partners us one-to-one with those children. And we get to walk all the way up through with them. And so, so here's my challenge to us, Next Level Church, this weekend. Here's my challenge. Gateway Campus, Plantation Campus, our online audience, here's my challenge. What will you do for the least of these? What will you do for the least of these? Listen, if you don't sponsor a child, good news, it's easy. That's why we have packets outside at both of our campuses that look just like this with children from all of the 26 different countries uh, that Compassion works in. It's $38 a month. All the information is there. There are volunteers out there who are manning those tables, helping you with any questions or things you need to know. My family, personally, we sponsor three Compassion kids, all boys, all boys. And two years ago when we had our Compassion Weekend, uh, both of my boys, Will and Drew, that Dr. Stafford mentioned, uh, were able to choose and pray about and choose who they would sponsor. And I'm telling you, every single night before bed, every night, my kids pray for Sergio, Stephen, and Nagusu. And guys, listen, a year ago, about a year and a half ago, we were able to take my family to Guatemala, and we met two, Sergio and Stephen, I think we have some pictures, two of our Compassion Kids. And I'm telling you, there's no better vehicle to disciple your children, parents, than sponsoring a compassion child, writing those letters several times a year, getting letters back. I'm telling you, it is life changing. So if you don't sponsor a child, I'm just telling you, you got to do that. You got to do that this weekend. Okay, listen, here's the deal. If you do sponsor a child, my goodness, my goodness, maybe God wants you to sponsor another one. Maybe God's going to prompt your heart. My wife is so excited about this weekend because she's like, all right, we've sponsored three boys. We're finally getting a girl in our family, and I'm so excited about that. So my wife is going to be out there at the table this weekend, you guys, pushing and shoving to find a little girl because it's, she's that passionate because we just we believe in what compassion is doing. And then listen, if you do sponsor a child, write letters. Listen, it's not just about the money. I'm telling you what, it is about it, <laughs> it is about writing letters. When we were in Guatemala, we went on a house visit with a young girl named Josie. I think we have a picture of our family with her family. And she was so excited. Her hut is on the, literally on the side of a mountain. And when it rains, like the, the, like the land, like the dirt and mud come into her house. And we got there. And you know what she did? The first thing she did, she introduced us to her little brothers and sisters and her, her mom and her grandmother. And then she went, just a minute. She's never met us before. She ran in, and underneath her bed, she has a a bundle of every letter and picture that her sponsor has ever written and sent to her. 
And she's like, look, look, this, this is my sponsor. And she's showing us her sponsor. You guys, I'm telling you, writing the letters, being in communication, it makes the gospel real. And what Dr. Stafford said to my family and I last night at dinner, he said this. He said, it is the sponsorship, the one-to-one sponsorship that gives them hope. And hope is the thing that lifts people out of poverty. So my question to us, my challenge to us, Next Level Church this weekend is, what will you do for the least of these? So we're going to pray. We're going to open our hearts. And we're going to obey what God prompts us to do. Come on, every campus, every service, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you for bringing us Dr. Stafford to deliver this word, to share his testimony, his story of how you use circumstances in his life to make him an advocate for the least of these. And so, Jesus, we do take up that mission because we know it's not just close to his heart, but, Lord, it's close to your heart. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would move upon our hearts this weekend that we might do as you would want us to do, that we'd follow your leading and we'd be obedient. Jesus, thank you for blessing us that we might be a blessing to the least of you these because, God, we know that is how we love thy neighbor as ourselves. God, we pray this in Jesus' name and everybody at every campus who agreed said, amen. Come on, let's celebrate what God's done together. If your life has been impacted through this ministry, we would love to hear your story. Send us an email to mystory@nextlevelchurch.com. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. Also, if you want to support what God is doing here, you can do so through our website, nextlevelchurch.com, and help us bring you more messages just like this one every single week. Your generosity is making an impact here and around the world. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.